I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy New Year! Happy! Happy real New Year! Did we say it on the last episode? I think we probably did, but we, we did, we did, but it was a fake, and we admitted it, didn't we? Yes. How, how's it going for you? Have you resolved to change anything in your life? I didn't really go big on the old New Year's resolutions this year. Did you? No, not really. I, I, sort of, I, I was thinking about making a resolution to spend less time with my family, but the way lockdowns <laughs> are now, that doesn't uh, it doesn't seem likely to happen. Yeah, I mean, I look, I just to sort of complete the various humble brags, you know. I swam in the ponds on Christmas, my birthday, Christmas Eve. I went in for, on Christmas Day. I gave you the best Christmas present that you could possibly have hoped for, which was a photo, as requested, a photo of me um, in my swimming gear. It was incredible. And I wasn't expecting it at all. I was so delighted uh, about it. Um, it. It will never leave my phone. I have shown it to my wife, but nobody else. Oh, God. But, but oh, basically, God. I think... I accidentally guilt tripped you into sending it to me because we'd said we weren't going to do presents this year. And then I thought, oh, we'll yes, exactly. It. Then I thought I will send Ed a birthday present. And we just mentioned on it the was last incredibly episode, kind of you. we were talking about cookbooks and I'd mentioned this Nigel Slater Green Feast book, which is, is but great. You bought me two cookbooks, both of which well, are lovely. But the Nigel Slater books, cookbook. one's autumn, winter, one spring, summer. I know, so but I, it's fantastic. So, so anyway, I just thought I'd send them to you. And then I started getting a barrage of text messages, which made me feel awful because you were saying, oh, I feel dreadful that I haven't got you a present. And I, I'd given you these things to try and bring a little joy to your birthday. And Wish I ended you up did. making you feel bad about yourself. Well, and, no, you didn't. No, no. And then that, that manifested uh, itself in, in, in guilt, which then led you to take a picture of you doing your outdoor swimming and it's really special what a, what a great thing it's like you, you once you've seen it you can't unsee it it's mm. that got that problem hasn't it it's yeah. got that quality it, it does I, th- I thought maybe for your 60th birthday which is, is a good while off of of, of course oh but- for goodness sake <laughs> Well, I'm just thinking, when is your next milestone? And your next milestone is yeah, your 60th. Jeez, so, well, thank you very much. <laughs> and yeah, I thought I could right. maybe commission an artist to recreate it in oils. Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> We're moving on. I have so many things to thank you for, but one thing I do have particular thing I have to thank you for is the sort of bike riding because, you know, one big milestone for me this year compared to last year, and if you'd said to me at the beginning of last year, you're going to become a sort of reasonably proficient bike rider who doesn't need stabilizers and, you know, doesn't need a tricycle, I would have sort of not really believed you. I mean, even more than the cold swimming, I think, even less than the cold swimming. I mean, the interesting thing is we've all heard this play out on the podcast. We can go back to our cycling episodes where yeah. both you and I saying, oh, yeah, I mean, it's a nice idea, but I'd never do that in London. Uh, to you then hearing that I'd been out cycling, you said, don't you fall off? What about your balance? Uh, all these conversations about what about when you're turning right and you have to put your arm out or, or whatever. And, and then then your dalliance were, you know, your your dalliance with the idea of getting a tricycle and and now i think you're out more far more than i am at this point even though my cycling was improving i found the oddly enough i found putting your arm out to indicate going right was doable Mm. when i did it going left i would end up um wobbling all over the place now you might say that's some kind of political metaphor but uh um uh, uh, uh but 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 whatever it is, I've, I'm definitely getting more accomplished at it. How long before we see some dash cam footage of you careening into someone or something or falling off your bike or cycling into a you know, huge Cabbage barrow batch. full of fruit or something? Well, possibly not that long. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, well, you mean, I think you think I might be getting a bit complacent. Don't cycle walk before you can cycle run to horribly mixed metaphors. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think, I think that's as always, um, that is good parenting advice. Should we talk about what we're going to talk about? Yes. This week, we're talking about flexible working. That's the flexibility that employees have over where, when, and how much they work. 
Workers in the UK have a right to request flexible working from their employer, but only after they've worked for six months. And surveys suggest that one in three of those requests are turned down. Now, obviously, we've seen a huge and enforced shift to home working over the last year, but campaigners say this is yet to translate into a widespread adoption of truly flexible working. And this will have a particular impact on parents during the next few months, as many once again have to juggle working with looking after their children at home while schools are closed. But but then more broadly, there's a question about when we come out the other side of the pandemic, what is the world of work going to look like? We're going to be talking to Jane Funsale, who's from a charity called Working Families, about the barriers to flexible working, particularly for parents and carers, and how laws could be changed. Then we're talking to Karen Mattison from TimeWise about how employers can support their workers with more flexible jobs. And then we're talking to academic Eero Vara about the situation in Finland, which is one of the best countries in the world for flexible working. Finland actually has a law which allows workers to adjust their start or finish times by three hours. And we'll be asking Eero to talk about that and explain uh, what is behind Finland's flexible working culture. And our cheerful person this week is uh, chef food writer personality Hugh Fernley Whittingstall who has got a new book it's called Eat Better Forever uh, changing the way you think about food and and what you eat and your health and it's it's very much not a diet book it's about change and he's an interesting character so lots to talk to you about what's your reason to be cheerful well my reason to be cheerful sort of relates a bit to the podcast which I think we've mentioned before which is that I am working on a book um based on uh, some of our episodes about how we can make the world a better place and writing a book turns out is a lot of work um and um we're not quite yet at the sort of finished stage but we are at the stage of having submitted a manuscript which we which i did on uh uh january uh the 5th and that's that so there was quite a lot of work over the christmas holiday and i have Massive, massive thanks to Joel, who works on the podcast as well, who's without whom this would never, ever have got to this stage. So that is – I'm definitely cheerful about that. That's fantastic. And it um, comes, out, comes out on the 3rd of June. At the moment, that's the plan, yeah. And the last time I checked, uh, it, it was um, number 1,968,017 <laughs> in the overall chart. But very well, impressively, the only way is up. It was at number six thousand six hundred eighty-nine in war and defence operations. Yep. Well, that's really relevant. So um, you know, I I I, I want to see big improvement on those numbers when people can actually buy and 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 uh, and then have the book in their hands. Well, hopefully, it will inspire people about the world we can create. It's exciting. I, I can't wait to. I can't wait to read it. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well. Um, a bit of rare earnestness from me or, or sort of self-reflection. I'm 20 years sober uh, as as of yesterday when this comes wow. out. So this, this coming Sunday, yeah. Congratulations, man. Yes. I keep, I don't know what's going on with, with me this year because I don't, you know, I don't usually, I mean, I usually notice it, but I keep getting, you can hear it. I keep, I keep getting teary thinking about it and I don't, oh, I don't even Jeff. know why. Oh, Jeff! Well, look—it's an amazing achievement. That is an amazing, and and you haven't touched a drink in those twenty years. No, no. That is an amazing achievement. But how how do you celebrate? I mean, when you're sober. Uh, difficult. There must be a way. Yeah, maybe. There, uh, there must maybe, be a way. Non-alcoholic something. Yeah, maybe I can just gorge on food. I'll check with Hugh Fernley Whittinstall. What's your favourite non-alcoholic tipple? Um. I don't know whether it is a tipple, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, is it, is it a tipple? I don't know. I mean, I, I often feel like a child drinking. I drink a lot of fizzy pop, you know. I, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm really into. Colas that aren't, yeah. that aren't either Coca-Cola or Pepsi. So if I see either anything from a cheap supermarket brand cola uh, to some kind of hipster cola, I always get really excited by it. There's one I I'm, I'm, uh, drink a lot of at the moment, Fritz cola it's called it comes from germany and they do like a, a sugar-free one and uh, the label looks like a Kraftwerk album cover so yeah but you're i'd say i'd say you're a hipster cola what's the sort of overriding emotion about those 20 years and what what you know 
being I don't know I think about what a mess I was and and what I put people through a lot that you know that that's that's part of it and just people who knew me back then and 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 know me now and I think part of the reason I, I drank so much and why it was you know it was overdue that I stopped drinking was I, I really didn't feel very confident in myself and I didn't really like my personality very much apart from when I was drunk um which is you know that's a work in progress but pe- people have have been very kind over the years who knew me when I was drunk about what the change it's it's made to me and their relationship with me so that's maybe that's what I'm getting overwhelmed by I don't know well that's an incredible achievement Jeff thank many, you many 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 congratulations thank you reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd so to talk about flexible working and how um, we might do better as a country, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Jane Fonsale, who is Chief Executive of Working Families, a charity advocating for work-life balance. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. Let's just start with the basics, because it's, I think it's important. What is flexible working? How would you describe that? Flexible working is all kinds of different types of working. So it's part-time, it's uh, coming in late, leaving early, it is job shares, it's um, full-time, maybe from home or in a remote location. It's also being able to flex your days, your hours, depending on what suits you. And quite often for a team, it's about self-rotor management so about a team deciding when works best for them in terms of um, responding to the demands of customers. That's incredibly uh, clear and helpful. Thank you. And then tell us how common was flexible working in the UK before the pandemic? I mean, what? just give us a paint us a picture of where we were, say, in sort of March 2020. We do something called the Modern Families Index, um, which we've been doing for the last eight years. And what it says really is that flexible working for parents has pretty much stalled at around 50% of the parents that we interviewed were working flexibly in some way. Um, I know that you're going to be talking to TimeWise later on and they do a wonderful um, jobs index. And they've been saying that nine out of 10 people want to work flexibly, six out of 10 do, but only two out of 10 jobs are advertised flexibly. So it certainly is something everybody wants to do, particularly anybody who has caring responsibilities, people with long-term health conditions and people at the start and the end of their careers who may be wanting to earn some income while doing something else or may also be wanting to slow down their work responsibilities. And um, the main vehicle, I think I'm right in saying, in Britain to enable employees to work flexibly is the thing is the thing called the right to request yes flexible working do you just want to talk a little bit about the history of that and, and sort of what it does and doesn't give you the opportunity to do well most importantly um you can only apply for flexible working after you've been employed for 26 weeks so you can imagine that for anybody moving into a role so starting a new job, they have to wait for half a year before they can even apply. And then the employer can use anything up to seven reasons as to why flexible working won't work in their particular role. Now, we do understand that there are some roles which do need presence somewhere, a place for a specific period of time. But that doesn't mean that every single job needs to work like that. How many people sort of ask for this and get it? And how many people, what proportion of people ask for it and sort of don't get it in your experience? I think I'm right in saying the employer has three months to reply, to respond. But are people generally successful or unsuccessful in, in getting it? It's a very mixed bag. It depends entirely on the organisation. Um, and many parents won't put in the application because the culture within the organisation makes it makes them know that you know one they're going to block their copybook which is never a good thing um, if you're wanting to advance in your career or just retain your job um, so that a culture pushes a lot of people into not applying and those that do apply again it's a very mixed bag and I think I'm right in saying that 
and correct me if I go wrong here, that men are more likely, or fathers anyway, are more likely to have requests for flexible working turned down Is that than mothers. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. We still live in a world where caring parenting is very gendered. So it is considered that mothers may need to work part-time or flexibly, whereas fathers don't have that need because there's always this assumption that um, men will have somebody at home who will be able to pick up the responsibilities and that their partner's roles are not as important. Their partner's work roles are not as important. And of course, we've had the experience of the last uh, year or so with the with the pandemic, which has had dramatic effects on where people can work, how people can work and so on. Talk to us about the, if you would, about the challenges that parents and carers have faced and how employers have responded and how you think the pandemic has changed things. Yes, it's really interesting that um, all kinds of organisations which said that their work couldn't be done from home ever at all, never, suddenly within a number of weeks were able to change that. Obviously, the pandemic has negatively affected people in organisations where their work is place-based. So obviously, anybody in the hospitality industry. Anybody who was desk-based, really, many, you know, most of them have been able to work from home. One of the most important things that we would say is we have always said that flexible working is no substitute for childcare. You cannot work while trying to homeschool, particularly primary age children. It's just not possible. In terms of what's what's going to happen in the future, we've done a couple of um, polls where we've asked people. And certainly the responses that we're getting are exactly the same as we've always had, which is that people want to continue to work flexibly. One in 10 people want to work at home forever. But working from home is not the only kind of flexible working and certainly doesn't suit everybody. Um, I'm particularly thinking about uh, young people, people in shared accommodation, people with no access to outside space, anybody in a family with children running around, that can also be very difficult. I think it will push people to know that it is possible to work from home. It is possible to work flexibly. Your job doesn't have to be done in in the kind of restricted, structured way that it has. Um, And certainly presenteeism, which is one of the big things that we have pushed against, is going to be one of the things, physically being able to see the people that you work with on the desk over there is going to be something that people are really going to push against. And and just staying just for a minute, and we'll talk about other kinds of flexible working, but just staying on this remote working that companies... Have, have learned very quickly they could pivot to I'm, I'm wondering if the the conversations that you would ordinarily be having about that transition around conditions and and rights for people working at home haven't happened and there's a lot of kind of catching up there to be done for, for example I'm thinking about you know the amount of hours that people work in in some ways there would be potential here for for companies to see this type of remote working as a way of ripping up some of the regulations yes of course i you know with with change of any kind there's always danger that that the bad bits are going to be the what people latch on to what we have always found with parents working flexibly is that um there is this bleed into the evening. So once parents have sorted children out, they will then put in a couple of hours in the evening, which are in addition to the de- to the hours they've been putting in during the day. Um, and therefore, you start getting this kind of 24-7 working, which obviously is not ideal either. We want that two-sided flexibility, both from the position of the employee and the position of the employer. So we want the employer to know that, yes, the people that are working for them will do the very best they can to get everything done. But at the same time, we don't want it to be flexibility that's only available from the employer. I mean, I'm thinking particularly, you know, when when, when you talk about people being seen as a nuisance if they re- request flexible working when they're applying for a job or copybooks being blotted, is, is that something that can be helped at all by legislation or is the different legislation which then prompts a change in culture 
legislation is always a, a, a is always a really helpful but part of it is around access to justice as well so it's all very well changing the law but if people if working people can't actually make their employers change then that becomes a problem too um but certainly for us the big game changer would be advertising jobs as flexible if you had to advertise all roles as flexible unless there was a really good reason why they couldn't be then that would make an enormous change um one of the things that um this government consulted on last year was about how can we make um employers uh certainly those who employ more than 250 people advertise their benefits once a year so that if you are applying for a role at another organization you can very easily see if they do offer parental leave whether that's paid or unpaid so there are a number of policy calls 10 days worth of paid parental leave would be a big thing for us if childcare breaks down for any reason what that means is that the 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 parents are then put in an extraordinary position do they take a sick day to try and manage what's going on if parents were given 10 days during the entire year where they were paid and they could take that at short notice the difference that would make to their working lives would be extraordinary uh, and let me follow up on um something you said which is um advertising jobs as flexible unless there's a good reason not you you said earlier there were seven reasons why employers could turn down a right to request are those seven too broad in your view uh, or or should they be narrower this is rather an in the weeds maybe characteristically an in the weeds question but just it would be quite useful to know a lot of employers will simply use any one of those seven reasons to turn down a request so for example that it would jeopardize the team that it would jeopardize the work that's getting done um that it would be too difficult to manage the rota you know there are all kinds of different reasons that So that's too broad in your view is it way too broad and uh, you know one of the things that we bang on about is is good quality job design if each job is designed so that it is a human sized job it can be done in the hours that are allocated to it and if people look at what actually needs to be done within a role then that unlocks all kinds of jobs in terms of being able to be done flexibly you said earlier that you've got to have been working 26 weeks to get the right to apply are you you if 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 the stipulation would have to be that it's got to be advertised flexibly and there's a good reason not does that then need to be accompanied by what are called rights from day 1 or does that taken care of by the stipulation on advertising well, i would think that it would be um taken care of by the by the stipulation around advertising because there will be some jobs that can't be done um part time or job share um and certainly there are jobs that do need to be completed within a specific time so it is challenging for employers to be in a position where they've recruited somebody everything's gone very well they've been very clear about what the needs are and then the employer starts on day 1 and says no well actually I want to do this two days a week from the outer hebrides that's going to be really challenging in terms of that relationship between the employer and the employee but if the job was advertised as being able to be done two days a week flexibly then that wouldn't be an issue Well look it's um very very um inspiring to talk to you and it feels like the right moment to be talking to you because you know hopefully we will be through uh at least somewhat to the other side of uh, the immediate public health crisis uh, in the coming months and 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 these issues seem to me to be absolutely central so Jane Fonsell uh, thank you so much for joining us Thanks very much for having me delighted to be here We're going to speak now to Karen Matteson who is co-founder of Timewise. Karen, hello. Hi. Um let me get this right. Uh, Timewise is a consultancy that advises employers on flexible working. Tell tell us a bit more about that and sort of how it came into existence. Sure. Um yes, we're a social business actually and um as you say we do two things. We do we advise businesses on how to basically get better at flexible working because they need a lot of support in that area. and we also have a job site for candidates who are individuals who want to find flexible work and on our site they'll see it all in one place so we've got 100,000 candidates looking for part-time flexible jobs 
it was a totally unplanned career for me. It's it's what I never expected, which was a 15 year obsession with flexible working. It was never my career plan. And I guess it started really because of my own experience of getting completely stuck in the job market. So I was, uh, it was around 2004-05. I had two young children then. And I sort of got myself in a position where I was in a job, I'd outgrown the job, but it was quite a senior role. And I'd been allowed to work part time four days a week. And when I looked at trying to find another job, I thought there's literally nothing out there. There was no part-time or flexible jobs advertised. And everywhere I went, I was told, you've basically got three choices. Go and get a full-time job, get your arms around it. When they love you, then they'll let you do four days or a day from home, whatever you want. Or stop working until you're ready to get serious about your job and your career. Or stay where you are and be grateful for what you've got, which is a flexible job that most people would kill for. And I became much more politicised about it and also started to see the world of work through a different lens and realised that it was designed, you know, this Monday to Friday, nine to five in an office or, or eight till eight or whatever it might be, was totally designed for a man with a wife. And if you're not a man with a wife, how do you negotiate it? So that's why we launched TimeWise and actually focusing on how do we make the world of flexible working better? And, and, you know, you talk there about your own experience uh, of, of finding it difficult to um, move jobs and work flexibly all those years ago. I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit more just about what the attitudes towards flexible working were like, not just amongst bosses, but, but colleagues back 15 years ago when you started thinking about this, how that has changed over that time and actually where it needs to get to. Yeah, uh, I think I sometimes say to younger women that I talk to, you just can't believe how much things have changed. We're not where we want to be, but we are in a very different place. So, at the, you know, when I first talked about flexible working, no one was talking about it. There was no media dialogue about women in work other than talking about childcare. And I think that the conversation in business, there was an understanding that women might want to work flexibly, but it was assumed that it's good for the employee, but bad for business. So it was a very, very binary situation that we were looking at. And the other thing that around part-time, and I think in this conversation about flexible working, part-time is a very important one. It always came with an apology. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just part-time. I'm only part-time. So there was never a feeling that actually part-time is something you could do and be powerful and be successful and be ambitious. So I think we cannot underestimate how much things have changed and obviously in that time we've also had some legislation that's changed as well so there wasn't even a legal right to request flexible working so people were very very nervous to talk about it what does good look like in terms of where things need to go now then you know you've you've marked the progress that we've made what is the new way of thinking about it and how do we how do you think we can get there I think there's two major barriers right now to flexible working one is on the way we design jobs And the other is on the way we hire jobs. So if I talk about the design side of it, rather than just, you know, redesign or agree a flexible work arrangement for individual, look at the team, look at the organisation, what works for us. And I honestly believe you can design flexibility into any organisation, not all flexibility. So for me, flexible working is where you work, when you work and how much you work. Where you work, obviously working from home, working remotely, when shift patterns keep having flexibility that works both ways and then how much is the critical one because that's the one businesses haven't quite got right yet so I've got some people who want to work four days I've got people who want to work three days how can I juggle that and make sure that the the thing works both for the organization and the individual and we just are now working so creatively with so many businesses who are taking that open response to okay if we don't start with the assumption that everything has to fit to Monday to Friday nine to five in an office, we've got a blank piece of paper. What do I need doing? What the actual work? How can I cut it up? Right, here's my workforce. Where do they want to be? How do they want to work? And I think when you start thinking about that, you also think about how do people do their best work? Well, they're not when they're stuck in an office worrying about being somewhere else. I think when you take that blank sheet of paper and you help businesses get there, that leads to amazing creativity. And I mean, what's so fascinating about this conversation is I think maybe and maybe this is a bit simplistic so forgive me what you're saying is don't make flexibility the exception or the thing that's got to be asked for make it the default 
I mean, make it the make it the starting point for the way you do think about it. You make it reason neutral. So yes, my original reason for working flexibly was that I had child, young children. Yours might be different. But talking about that is irrelevant. It doesn't help you. Actually, let's focus on the kind of flexibility we want, what works for the business, what works for the organisation, try out new things. But essentially, don't assume that Monday to Friday, nine to five is the only way we can do things in offices. And would your argument be that this can be better for business, just to be absolutely clear about this, because, you know, lots of your work is working with businesses. Lots of businesses may be thinking, you know, particularly if they're smaller, how am I going to be able to afford this? How is it going to be possible? But presumably your argument is this can benefit business. Um, not, it's not just my argument. The, the evidence has been there and, and it's really, really strong. And this is quite so the things that businesses, the challenges for business are productivity, tons of evidence that with flexible workforce, you get it's higher productivity, retention, huge, hugely better staff retention. And obviously that's what's costing businesses to rehire people when they go. Recruitment and progression, massively better. And I think all the evidence has been there for, for a long, long time. And I think businesses, and then, and then of course you've got in the, the gender point, the gender diversity and the general inclusive growth. The other assumption that people make is it's fine for big business and not very good for small business because it seems like a bit of a headache or, or it's another thing to beat small businesses. Actually, our experience is that small businesses are actually much better at it in many ways, because if I'm a small business from a hiring point of view, if I'm a small business, I would rather somebody and I want a new finance director. I'd rather someone really experienced for three days a week than someone paid me less experience for five days. And once I start thinking about it like that, I can cut up my workforce and actually I might have a couple of days need for a marketing person and a couple of days a week that I need for a PR person. Well, if you go a very traditional route, you get a marketing and PR person who's probably good at one and not very good at the other. But if you cut it up a bit, you've got ultra flexibility an extremely loyal workforce and a different way of thinking about it. Talk to us about the experience of the pandemic, because, you know, obviously it's been a terrible time for for many many people and has you know imposed very very significant constraints on all of us what's been the experience around flexibility and how might it change things looking into the future so it was completely unplanned and i think it's not been a flexible working experiment it's been a remote working experiment unplanned and in many ways people are working in extreme ways that they would never do in inverted commas normal times they're trying to homeschool they're doing it without the kit they're having huge pressure on their wi-fi at home um, it took them a while to get going but it's knocked on the head one of the key objections that employers often had and concerns about their teams which was one about trust so if i've got all of these people working at home how will I know they're not going to be off putting a wash on and you know messing around and how will I trust them? And actually, that's just gone out of the window. But I think we still remain some real challenges about the other types of flexible working, specifically around how we hire into new jobs, because the data is showing that that's just not changed at all. Isn't this partly about men in the following sense? which is that we've basically constructed a man's world of work around the idea that men are at work, and as you said earlier, that they have a wife who's full-time at home. And, the, and of course, the good thing is that the country has changed a lot in that respect, but the problem is that our institutions haven't changed. And and maybe I, I don't say this being on a sort of the moral high ground at all, um, as Jeff will know, but, you know, isn't part of this about changing the way, well, I suppose what the expectate, you know, what the expectations are of both men and women, not just at work, but at, but at home as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think it's a conversation for us all. And I think the workforce has totally changed and the workplace is catching up. But I think one of the things that men can do is to stop working part-time under the radar. So actually, there's a million men working part-time in Britain right now at the moment. You never hear about them. You don't hear their stories. They're not talking about it. And until you get that kind of leadership and role models from men, 
I, I think it's it's still a women's fight. Well, look, it's incredibly inspiring to talk to you. You're obviously doing absolutely brilliant work. Karen Madison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, to see how it could be done, I'm delighted to say that we are joined now by Iro Vara, who is Professor of Organisation and Impact at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford and also Director of the Future of Work programme at Alto University in Finland. And he joins us from Finland. Iro, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Um, so Finland is said to lead the world in flexible working and um, we're very keen to hear about this so could you perhaps give us an overview of the rights that employees have to work flexibly in Finland I I believe that it was the Working Hours Act 1 and Working Hours Act 2 that were in particular very important in this I think you're right in the sense that Finland can be seen as one of the four runners uh, in this development I I think that the bigger story is that there's this long-term collaboration between the employee and employer associations and the government uh, which have been genuinely trying to uh, develop the working uh, conditions and and the quality of working life and uh, I guess that uh, ever since at the latest, ever since the early 1990s, this has also concerned uh, flexible working. And it kind of got started with things like notions such as uh, flexit time, meaning that people can more or less freely, under certain conditions, choose when to come to work and when to leave. But uh, the later developments uh, have been more substantial. And the point, really, with the new a working hours act that came into effect only one year ago is really that in conditions or when you basically uh, can conduct more than 50% of your work outside the traditional workplace, for instance, the office, then you can reach an agreement or contract uh, with the employer. So that's a, that's a deal with, between the employee and the employer, uh, which can then specify the conditions in terms of uh, when to work, how much, and where, with a lot so of degrees it, so, of freedom. So in other words, if it's practically possible to do 50% of your hours outside the workplace, you, you have a right as an employee to reach an, uh, an agreement with the employer. Is that right? That's right. Uh, it's a little bit m- more complicated than perhaps meets the eye because you do have to reach this agreement in the workplace. So it's not like a subjective right that you know anyone can just say that, okay, I can do this. But the law provides this framework which is very useful in, in, in terms of providing this comprehensive basis for these deals to be then struck in the workplace. And I think I'm right in saying that the 1996 Working Hours Act was world-leading in the sense that it allowed employees, and correct me where I go wrong here, Eero, to work three hours up to three hours earlier or three hours later in the working day. Is that, is that correct? That's right. So that was flexitite. So that was one of the milestones. But it's really the later developments which I think are more important in terms of understanding today's world and the, and, and the opportunities that, that exist now because of this Working Hours Act. And, and what about the Finnish mentality towards work? So something that's come up in the conversations we've been having is both employers seeing people uh, requesting flexibility as, as a nuisance or an annoyance or, or maybe, you know, some kind of judgment uh, from, from colleagues and, and some kind of idea that, you know, asking for flexibility could blot your copybook in, in some ways. Can you, can you talk to us about, you know, where culturally Finland is in regards to uh, working in a flexible way and, and, you know, where it was and what, what you know, how, how we got to now? I think that, that if there's any country which is really characterised by pragmatism it's Finland so there's this long tradition of collaboration there is this understanding that okay let's face the facts in terms of the you know changes that are happening anyway and let's try to be proactive and let's try to solve those issues many people still do enjoy things like uh, you know having a summer vacation or reserving some time to do other things so it kind of fits with the culture we can talk about the formal right like the three hours for example or the if you can do more than 50 percent of your work from outside the office but it's not just the formal right it's the attitude of employers in finland and i think 
it's it's hard to divorce the rights from the consensual culture. Is that is and is that right? I mean, you know, that that the three hours could be meaningful or it could be meaningless if employers can just say no. Because I think it is with the consent of your employers the three hours, for example. But you're saying it's meaningful because the culture is very much that employers want to go along and and be consensual. Exactly, exactly. I'm sure that we can find pieces of legislation or similar kinds of things in many places which don't have much uh, implications at all. But but I think it's 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 here in in Finland, or at least it seems to be like this. That 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 this this is a big deal, and and and, and the different uh, well associations and employee employee representatives are well aware of the of the new act, and and then there's like uh, like uh, enthusiasm in terms of making use of this this uh, this act but, but this happens alongside of course the actual development in the workplace which is that people are working more and more remotely i mean even without covid-19 we would see this happening and it's increasingly uh, being such that that people um, not only work in their traditional workplace but also also uh, cross organizational boundaries and it's increasingly so that the boundaries of 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 one's working and personal life are being blurred and so forth Uh, and and and, and um, uh, just 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 to make a point, uh, to for this to be uh, somehow managed or positive, then of course a culture of of trust and support, and 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 and, um, and, and, and at least trying to you know develop consensus is extremely helpful. Okay, well I think as always, um, but in particular on this occasion, it's quite inspiring to hear about Finland. Uh, and what it's doing and i think it's definitely something for us to learn from uh iravara thank you so much for joining us thank you very much it's been a great pleasure what did you think it, it made me think about uh i don't know 25 maybe more years ago i had this boss who would work from home sometimes And whenever he was working from home, everybody's attitude was, "Oh, he's not really working from home. He's just he's just Sh- shirking fr- shirking from home." Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and h- how ingrained that is, uh, and and how you know it's it's taken such a long time just to shift people's shift people's attitudes away from that, and and yet still it seems a lot of what is trying to be accomplished in this area is just creating frameworks so people aren't thought of as an annoyance uh if if they're asking to work flexibly it's it's not even that we're at the point where uh it, it seems like the conversation is look here's why flexible working is great for uh both the people who work for you and for you as a company it's it's more like feels like something that employers feel is is being Im- imposed on them and how how do you shift that i think that's a really interesting point i mean i, I feel i've got so many different th- thoughts about this one why has it taken us 173 episodes yeah. to do this i know we, 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 uh, we have touched on it. it well we've touched on it haven't we with mm. you know um father's leave and some of the other issues that we've talked about but it's such a it's such an important issue and it's so been brought home in in different ways by the Um, by the pandemic and you know finland makes me really quite optimistic about about what is possible i thought karen made me quite optimistic about you know you can really show employers and business this is this can be better for them mm. you know i think i think that's the sort of point and i you know i can't help feeling that you know in the tragedy of the pandemic the the sort of point you've made about the view of working from home will have shifted because you know lots of lots more people have been working from home during this period and i think lots of the forecasts are that even on the other side of the pandemic lots more people will be working from home yeah but it's shifting from like this emergency mode to a version of flexible working and in that case remote working that that makes sure that sort of people are, are treated properly and valued properly at, at the same time and also i think crucially and it's really worth emphasizing this point that it's not just a middle class right mm, yeah but 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 because there is a real if you you know as we've seen in the pandemic there is a real class aspect to who's able to work from home and who isn't yeah and and if you look at the figures 
you know, there's a real issue that that you're much less likely to have flexible working rights or have your employer be be willing to do it if you're low paid. So there's a real issue about making sure this is done and done in an equitable way. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. get in and just kind of have a look around and enjoy for a few minutes and then get out again. Well, so are you going down there in your speedos with a mallet over your shoulder and breaking ice? What what does that look like? Well, it doesn't quite require a mallet, but a a good kick of the uh, booted foot. I I do wear, for really cold water swimming, I do wear wetsuit boots and gloves because the feet and the hands just hurt so much. I mean, I do a couple of leisurely lengths of the pond when it's not covered in ice. That's only about, it's only about a 30, 40 metre pond. So a couple of leisurely lengths. But and uh, when I get to the far end, you know, after the first length and before the return, uh, there's this thing I can hold on to on this little jetty. And I just sort of chill there, obviously, literally, uh, but in the water, just looking around. And there's quite often birds flitting in the trees or something clouds going slowly overhead and i have a moment of contemplation of a couple of minutes and then i swim back i think one thing we conclusively say is we have proved the stig able adage which is that everyone who's ever been cold water swimming has boasted about going cold water swimming (laughs) that is true i haven't been shy about it it's been very present on my instagram feed here's what's interesting to me i do think this is of a piece with with the themes you introduce in the book which you know just isn't uh, about recipes or a diet but it's it's a, a way um of living or, or when, when you were describing being in the water and just taking that moment and i know we've all heard the word mindfulness you know ad nauseum the last few years but but that that's what you're describing when you talk about the the the, the food we're eating and how how we're eating it as well yeah, you're absolutely right. And and of my seven ways that you refer to, the, the seventh chapter and the seventh way is to eat and also to not eat mindfully. Because what it really means is is just being with whatever you're doing, being mentally present with whatever you're doing. And one of the problems with life generally is we're often mentally absent from the thing that we're doing. And actually with food, there are lots of very good reasons to refocus and be with it. And let me ask you what motivated you to write the 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 book in particular um because you know you've obviously written lots of books about 
you know, recipes, cooking, all of that. What? But this is, a, as Jeff says, this has got a particular slant. What? 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 What motivated you to write this? Yes, that's a very good question, and I think that un, I mean I've I've always tried to write cookery books that have got a bit of a point or an argument, a bit a little bit of a polemic underlying them. This book was a bit different. It sort of it, it crept up on me. It took much longer. It's been three years in the making. And it it started as a, some, something I felt I might write about four or five years ago, and then it just developed. And from then on, it's really been under my skin and and brewing and percolating. And I, you know, and I've actually been writing it for more than two years. And it finally, I did the final edit over lockdown. Now, there's lots of um, good advice in this book uh, about whole foods, about varied foods, about reducing refined carbs, and so on. I'm particularly interested, and it's a good subject for me and Jeff to get into with you about going with your gut. Um, yeah, absolutely. because in a sense, I I think this is at the this is you know correct me if I'm wrong here, but reading the book, I think you think this is at the most sort of cutting edge kind of area in the sense of there's lots more research going on about uh, your gut, gut bacteria, and so on. Talk to us a little bit about about your guts, and then I've got some advice to ask you about. Yeah, go, going with your gut, look at, looking after your gut. Well, the good news is that eating more whole foods, we, um, we remember we've taken those two words apart. We don't just mean brown rice and lentils. We mean all fruits and vegetables and some meat and fish, all the foods that are whole and fairly natural and unprocessed. No, that's very good for your gut. Eating a big variety of foods is good for your gut. Lots of high fibre, that's good for your gut. Good in the sense that it helps your gut to maintain a really broad spectrum of beneficial bacteria. Now, it's, the, the, the science on this is, is leading edge, but also quite early days. But the, there's all sorts of interesting hypotheses being developed that, that aren't quite proven out yet, but are absolutely fascinating. And there's a very strong connection. I mean, the connection between a good, a, a, a good well-working gut and physical health is not really that hard to understand. This is the engine room of your body. It's where important stuff like digestion happens, where the nutrients get sent in, in the right direction and all the rest of it. But there's also really amazing correlations between uh, having a diverse gut biome and mood and and, and and good and stable mental health, which are interesting and exciting. It's very interesting now, stuff. So now, it is very interesting stuff. Now, talk to me about kefir, kombucha, kraut and kimchi. Well, there does seem to be this bizarre rule that all the probiotic foods that are really good for your guts have to begin, begin with, with K. K. But apart from having to begin with K, the essential feature of these foods is that they're alive. You know, they're all fermented. Um and kefir and kombucha are, are essentially liquid, but kefir and kombucha are fermented liquids. Uh, kefir, usually milk-based, although there is water kefir. Kombucha, traditionally fermented tea, with a, a little bit of sugar to feed that fermentation. Are you a recent convert to these Ks? Convert with a K. Uh, I, convert with a K. Yeah, I'm a convert with a K. I mean, not super recent. I've been dabbling. I first started making my own kombucha a couple of years ago. Um, kefir, I suppose, popped up a, a three years ago. Yeah, I mean, recent-ish, yes. I mean, they are all... Kimchi's been around for ages, but mostly you'd only have encountered it in a Korean restaurant. Now it's kind of falling off the shelves of every health food shop and supermarket. Hey, Jeff, are you in this, are you in this business? Well, I, I like uh, I like some uh, as long as it's veggie. I like uh, some kimchi on a cheese toasty. Kombucha, I do like, and it's so hip. Somebody told me they've been to a startup, you know, a tech startup in in Silicon Valley, and they've got three taps: hot, cold, and kombucha. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, that's classic. Wow. And and on that, I mean, I, I feel this this podcast. I, I've dragged ed down to my lavatorial level you over have. the years L- literally with the japanese toilet actually so on this you know how how should we be doing it my preferred method is sitting there with a, a copy of the daily star but what's what's, yes. what's what's the way to go literally well I, I i think you're hinting at something that you might have spotted in the book here aren't you which is i don't have a japanese loo but I do use a loo step, sometimes known as a poo step. So I do raise my feet 
about eight inches or so off the ground. So I raise my knee so that my knees are higher than my hips. And that is actually a very, very comfortable position. And, and so the, the traditional porcelain throne has put millions of us, billions of us across the planet, into the wrong position for effective and efficient evacuation. And th- this is a simple way to nudge ourselves to a better position. And that's what I do. And you don't, you know, you can buy the posh loo steps online, molded, that nice bit of bamboo step to, to fit around your bowl. Or you can just put a couple of big cookbooks on the floor and uh, in front of your loo. <laughs> not <and> yours, <laughs> not yours. I think obviously other ones pe- that get other that get less less treasured books would be required. Uh, other, other, other people's cookbooks. I other think people's cookbooks. <laughs> and there, in case people think this is just a sort of barking kind of Hugh Fernley Whittingstall theory. Um, I like no the way that you put those epithets that, 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 that together as, that, as if that was one of the favoured yeah, ways of describing me. They, 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 <laughs> exactly. They, they, um, uh, so forgive me, but they, there is sort of research in your book to suggest that this... Oh, I haven't made this... No, it wasn't, I haven't made this up. <laughs> you know, the fact that these, these things exist uh, online and they, you know, they, it's one of those things... I was going to say a bit like cold water swimming, but even more so. It's a bit like growing your own vegetables. Once you've started, you don't go back. Why? Having now for probably three years uh, been using a, a loo step, why would I stop? The step's there. The step's in the loo. Hugh, I feel that you've just changed many people's lives. Yes, it's my favorite thing. That's what I'm here for. One poo at a time. Hugh Fernley one poo at a time. I mean, honestly, that that can be on the paperback. I mean, just just definitely the follow. I definitely don't have to worry about (laughs) what the next book's going to be about. Just just so that we don't end on that note. um, What what should Ed (laughs) have for his tea tonight? There's so Uh, many recipes in here. Honestly, well, if you want something, Ed, are you are you an omnivore? I think we well, all know that yep. he is. Yeah. Yep. Famously. Um, well, <laughs> I know, I do you to. know what? This, I think this is a time of year where, where salads and raw vegetables are easily overlooked, but actually what's around can be extremely delicious. I'm a big fan of raw red cabbage, and there's a recipe in the book for very mm. finely shredded red cabbage uh, and some grated carrot, and then bringing some citrus into the plate. If you've got any uh, clementines or oranges left over from the Christmas fruit bowl, that combination of uh, citrus flesh and crunchy cabbage and grated roots, and there may be a sprinkling of toasted seeds over the top. Sounds good to me. It's a delicious dish. The book is Eat Better Forever, Seven Ways to Transform Your Diet. Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you, guys. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. We are. Let me let me tell you something that I'm struggling with at the moment. So because go of on. current restrictions, we can't go to the barber. Yeah. And I don't mind so much in terms of my hair, but mm. I, I will always go and get my beard trimmed. And I mm. don't trust myself with the clippers. I had an accident during the last lockdown. But mm. the trouble is when it gets big, it doesn't. I don't look like a woodsman or a, a, a hipster. I look like a folk singer, but not like a sort of Greenwich Village folk singer. I look like someone you'd find in a cable knit. Uh, jumper in a Cornish <laughs> fishing village, and it's nothing. Nothing wrong with that, but couldn't you go kind of the full David Letterman? Oh, the sort of biblical beard. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm just more likely to go the full David Bellamy. Mm. What about shaving it off? You don't want to see what's under here. I don't think that's true. You, you know, don't I want think to that's see what's under here. Has Sarah ever seen you without a beard? Yeah, I, sh- I shaved it off for a fancy dress thing once, uh, f- for a 50s fancy dress thing, and it was horrifying because I'd convinced myself that under the beard I wasn't ageing. Uh, I thought I'd still be like 24 or whatever I was when I grew it. You and are, then, you are, no, you are. No, honestly, I'm so jowly. I'm like a nana. Hmm. Uh, so I don't have an easy solution. I mean, I, as you know, you know, when I've just had a haircut, people say Ed needs a haircut, so... <laughs> Goodness knows what it's going to be like uh, in in seven weeks' time. Um, I think I might have to get Justine to do it, but that's sort of that is a recipe for kind of marital strife. Really. George Clooney, I think, bought a device. He's not in let, letting Amal near it. He's he's bought some kind of device for cutting his own hair that he was waxing lyrical about on a chat show. I think. I thought you were going to suggest that jo- George Clooney cut my hair, but I don't think that's going to work. I think that will be breaching the rules. Um, 
Shall we thank our guests? Yes. I'd like to thank Jane Fonsale, Karen Matteson and Eero Vara. And thanks to Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. And I, I will be straight downstairs bringing up that stool to the bathroom and I'll, I'll keep you updated on the on And the I'll make my poached egg, and kim- poached egg and kimchi on toast. Delicious. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. Uh, Joel Pierce uh, does all the research with backup and support from Zoe Gelber, Fanula DC, and Joe Kenyon. Uh, oh, we should also uh, salute our friends at Left Foot Forward at this point, as as uh, as we like to. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been taking the plunge. He's gonna. Go and make a vegan sponge. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Mm.